one of the earlier podcasts i had talked about douglas murray and in particular i talked about his latest book called the madness of crowds in that book he talks about really the madness of our times what we are going through and the really hot topics of these times today i am going to talk about a book that came before the madness of crowds it's called the strange death of europe and the subtitle is immigration identity islam so you can see it revolves around these three ideas which is to say that how islamic immigration has affected or questioned the identity of europe now some people might see it as a some kind of polarizing idea but uh, i would say douglas murray analyzes it critically and asks this fundamental question that how much of immigration is right how much of it affects the identity of a culture of a civilization and does it change the culture does it not some of these fundamental questions in fact uh, i will narrate or read douglas murray's own words from the book and let you know what are the main ideas in this book he makes some really interesting claims and then also provides some evidence for that eventually you have to decide how good a job he does in that but i'm going to give you a flavor of the book by reading the first few pages and hopefully that will help you find out how the book is going to be so let's start Europe is committing suicide or at least its leaders have decided to commit suicide whether the european people choose to go along with this is naturally another matter when i say that europe is in the process of killing itself i do not mean that the burden of european commission regulation has become overbearing or that the european convention on human rights has not done enough to satisfy the demands of a particular community i mean that the civilization we know as a europe is in the process of committing suicide and that neither britain non nor any other western european country can avoid that fate because we all appear to suffer from the same symptoms and maladies as a result by the end of the life spans of most people currently alive europe will not be europe and the peoples of europe will have lost the only place in the world we had to call home it may be pointed out that proclamations of europe's demise have been a staple throughout our history and that europe would not be europe without regular predictions of our mortality yet some have been 
more persuasively timed than others. In The World of Yesterday, first published in 1942, Stefan Zweig wrote of his continent in the years leading up to the Second World War. He said, I felt that Europe, in its state of derangement, had passed its own death sentence. Our sacred home of Europe, both the cradle and the Parthenon of Western civilization. One of the few things that gave Zweig any hope even then was that in the countries of South America to which he had finally fled, he saw offshoots of his own culture. In Argentina and Brazil, he witnessed how a culture can emigrate from one land to another so that even if the tree that gave the culture life has died it, can still provide new blossom and new fruit. Even had Europe at that moment destroyed itself completely, Zweig felt the consolation that what generations had done before us was never entirely lost. Today, largely because of the catastrophe Zweig described, the tree of Europe is finally lost. Europe today has little desire to reproduce itself, fight for itself, or even take its own side in an argument. Those in power seem persuaded that it would not matter if the people and culture of Europe were lost to the world. Some have clearly decided to dissolve the people and elect another because as a recent Swedish conservative Prime Minister Frederick Reinfeldt put it, only barbarism comes from countries like his, whereas only good things come from outside. There is no single cause of the present sickness. The culture produced by the tributaries of Judeo-Christian culture, the ancient Greeks and Romans, and the discoveries of the Enlightenment has not been leveled by nothing. But the final act has come about because of two simultaneous concatenations from which it is now all but impossible to recover. The first is the mass movement of peoples into Europe. In all Western European countries, this process began after the Second World War due to labor shortages. Soon, Europe got hooked on the migration and could not stop the flow even if it had wanted to. The result was that what had been Europe, the home of the European peoples, gradually became a home for the entire world. The places that had been European gradually became somewhere else. So places dominated by Pakistani immigrants resembled Pakistan in everything but their location. With the recent arrivals and their children eating the food of their place of origin, speaking the language of their place of origin and worshipping the religion of their place of origin. 
streets in the cold and rainy northern towns of Europe filled with people dressed for the foothills of Pakistan or the sandstorms of Arabia. The empire strikes back, noted some observers with a barely concealed smirk. Yet, wherever, whereas the empires of Europe had been thrown off, these new colonies were obviously intended to be for good. All the time, Europeans found ways to pretend this could work by insisting, for instance, that such immigration was normal or that if integration did not happen with the first generation, then it might happen with their children, grandchildren or another generation yet to come or that it did not matter whether people integrated or not. All the time, we waved away the greater likelihood that it just won't work. This is a conclusion that the migration crisis of recent years has simply accelerated. Which brings me to the second concatenation. For even the mass movement of millions of people into Europe would not sound such a final note for the continent were it not for the fact that at the same time Europe lost faith in its beliefs, traditions and legitimacy. Countless factors have contributed to this development, but one is the way in which Western Europeans have lost what the Spanish philosopher Miguel de Unamuno famously called the tragic sense of life. They have forgotten what Zweig and his generation so painfully learned, that everything you love, even the greatest and most cultured civilizations in history can be swept away by people who are unworthy of them. Other than simply ignoring it, one of the few ways to avoid this tragic sense of life is to push it away through a belief in the tide of human progress. That tactic remains for the time being the most popular approach. Yet all the time we skate over and sometimes fall into terrible doubts of our own creation. More than any other continent or culture in the world today, Europe is now deeply weighed down with guilt for its past. Alongside this outgoing version of self-distrust runs more introverted version of the same guilt for there is also the problem in Europe of an existential tiredness and a feeling that perhaps for Europe the story has run out and a new story must be allowed to begin. Mass immigration, the replacement of large parts of the European populations by other people is one way in which this new story has been imagined. A change we seem to think was as good as a rest. Such existential civilizational tiredness is not a uniquely modern European phenomenon. But the fact that a society should feel like it has run out of steam at precisely the moment when a new society has begun to move in cannot help but lead to vast epochal changes. Had it been possible to discuss these matters, some solution might have been reached. Yet, even in 2015, at the height of the migration crisis, it was speech and thought that was constricted. 
At the peak of the crisis in September 2015, Chancellor Merkel of Germany asked the Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg what could be done to stop European citizens writing criticisms of her migration policy on Facebook. Are you working on this? she asked him. He assured her that he was. In fact, the criticism, thought and discussion ought to have been boundless. Looking back, it is remarkable how restricted we made our discussion even whilst we opened our home to the world. A thousand years ago, the peoples of Genoa and Florence were not as intermingled as they now are. But today, they are all recognizably Italian and tribal differences have tended to lessen rather than grow with time. The current thinking appears to be that at some stage in the years ahead, the peoples of Eritrea and Afghanistan too will be intermingled within Europe as the Genoans and Florentines are now melded into Italy. The skin color of individuals from Eritrea and Afghanistan may be different. Their ethnic origins may be from further afield. But Europe will still be Europe and its people will continue to mingle in the spirit of Voltaire and St. Paul, Dante, Goethe and Bach. As with so many popular delusions, there is something in this. The nature of Europe has always shifted and as trading cities like Venice show, has included a grand and uncommon receptiveness to foreign ideas and influence. From the ancient Greeks and Romans onwards, the peoples of Europe sent out ships to scour the world and report back on what they found. Rarely, if ever, did the rest of the world return their curiosity in kind, but nevertheless the ships went out and returned with tales and discoveries that melded into the air of Europe. The receptivity was prodigious. It was not, however, boundless. The question of where the boundaries of the culture lay is endlessly argued over by anthropologists and cannot be solved. But there were boundaries. Europe was never, for instance, a continent of Islam. Yet the awareness that our culture is constantly subtly changing has deep European roots. The philosophers of ancient Greece understood the conundrum, summing it up most famously in the paradox of the ship of Theseus. As recorded in Plutarch, the ship in which Theseus had sailed had been preserved by the Athenians who put in new timber when parts of the ship decayed. Yet was this not still the ship of Theseus even when it consisted of none of the materials in which he had sailed. We know that the Greeks today are not the same people as the ancient Greeks. We know that the English are not the same today as they were a millennium ago, nor the French, the French. And yet, they are recognizably Greek, English and French and all are European. In these and other identities, we recognize a degree of cultural succession. A tradition that remains with certain qualities, customs and behaviors. 
we recognize the great movements of the Normans, Franks and Gauls brought about great changes. And we know from history that some movements affect a culture relatively little in the long term, whereas others can change it irrevocably. The problem comes not with an acceptance of change, but with the knowledge that when those changes come too fast or are too different, we become something else, including something we may never have ever wanted to be. At the same time, we are confused over how this is meant to work, while generally agreeing that it is possible for an individual to absorb a particular culture, whatever their skin color, we know that we Europeans cannot become whatever we like. We cannot become Indian or Chinese, for instance. And yet we are expected to believe that anyone in the world can move to Europe and become European. If being European is not about race, as we hope it is not, then it is even more imperative that it is about values. This is what makes the question, what are European values so important? Yet, this is another debate about which we are wholly confused. Are we, for instance, Christian? In the 2000s, this debate had a focal point in the row over the wording of the new EU constitution at the absence of any mention of the continent's Christian heritage. The debate did not only divide Europe geographically and politically, it also pointed to a glaring aspiration. For religion had not only retreated in Western Europe, in its wake there arose a desire to demonstrate that in the 21st century Europe had a self-supporting structure of rights, laws and institutions which could exist even without the source that had arguably given them life. Like Kant's dove, we wondered whether we wouldn't be able to fly faster if we lived in free air, without the bother of the wind keeping us aloft. Much rested on the success of this dream. In the place of religion came the ever-inflating language of human rights. We left unresolved the question of whether or not our acquired rights were reliant on beliefs that the continent had ceased to hold or whether they existed of their own accord. This was, at the very least, an extremely big question to have left unresolved while vast new populations were being expected to integrate.